The following live episode of Doctor Who Podshock, recorded in August 2007, is dedicated to the memory of Rarity Lambert. We recognize in you the greatest specialist in time-space exploration. You have taken this branch of learning far beyond our elementary calculations. Oh, come, come, my dear sir. I know that you've been very responsible for vast scientific research. And at the same time, I always knew a race existed of great intelligence in this segment of the universe. Thank you, Doctor. We like to think that we have created here something of lasting value. You have. You have indeed, you have. And if I may say so, thank you, dear lady, for making me appear so grand. Live from a time when it was okay to call galaxies solar systems, to dream that the ballad of the okay corral would turn into a solid gold hit, to hope that Jackie Lane would make a better companion than Gene Marsh, most of all, to believe that the definition of hanky-panky did not include two school teachers following one of their young female students into a back alley. It's Doctor Who Podshock. Saturday, the 23rd of November, 1963, just a day after the assassination of President Kennedy, when Doctor Who first materialized on BBC television. Squeezed between the football results and the telegoons, a legend was born. Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? Have you? To be exiles? Susan and I are cut off from our own planet, without friends or protection. But one day, we shall get back. Yes, one day. Outpost Gallifrey presents Doctor Who Podshock, episode 95. Doctor number one, William Hartnell, the William Hartnell era. And uh, this is Louis Trapani. Joining me is our co-host, Mr. Ken Deep. Hello, Ken. Hello. And uh, also with us is uh, across the Great Pond is James Norton. Hello, James. Hello. Good to have you on board. And joining us also, our regular contributor, uh, Darth Skeptical. Got it, guys. How you doing? Good to hear you back on board as well. So uh, we're all on board the TARDIS. Um, the first TARDIS, if you will. Um, it's the golden era of um, Doctor Who back... Um, 1963, it first came onto the screen, and the first and only Doctor we knew at that time was William Hartnell. And uh, this episode's going to be dedicated to that um, that that first uh, era, if you will, of Doctor Who, where um, when William Hartnell was the Doctor, and the Doctor number one, even though at that time we didn't know he was, well, <laughs> I wasn't around ex exactly at that time, but 
Um, for those that were, they didn't know that um, he was going to be one of many doctors. He was just known as the doctor, and hence um, the title of the show, Doctor, Doctor Who. It was really the um, the, the, the groundwork or, or the foundation of the series, uh, which, um, you know, the, the Variety Lambert, the first producer, and Sidney Newman, who um, created the concept of Doctor Who, and um, William Hartnell, and uh, the rest of the cast and crew really uh, brought it to life. And um, it's because of their efforts that we're here today doing this podcast and um, enjoying new episodes of Doctor Who. And um, But if it wasn't for this um, this rather humble production, which um, perhaps at the time it wasn't so, it was, it was really like doing a live show in that, in that time period. Uh, there was a three-camera oper- operation in a studio and um, it was, um, they had limited cuts that they can, camera stops that they can actually do. So, uh, everything kind of had to, um, be shot or almost like it was a, a live show. So, um, it's when you, un- when you understand and comprehend the, um, the, the conditions that they did the program in, uh, you can even appreciate it on another level. But if, um, as always, when I'm watching these classic episodes, I kind of put myself in the time period and, uh, um, and and enjoying them as if I was uh, watching them, perhaps on the first time that they were transmitted, and uh, and it was um, a, a different time uh, on this planet. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, in in the UK, but we can since it's a worldwide podcast, wherever you happen to be. So um, anyway, so it should be an interesting show. And um, uh, but before we get to that. Um, I don't know if there's any news stories we want to cover. I know there's been a lot of casting, um, which has been really the consistent news throughout um, the past month or so, is these casting rumors. And um, I don't know if we should sound the spoiler alerts. and or, Please, or... sound the spoiler alert, because... Um... <laughs> All right, well, consider the spoiler alerts um, engage. I, I don't have my cloister bills uh, loaded in, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, probably the the biggest news out of uh, out of the UK over the past week was the incredible news that Peter Davison, the Fifth Doctor, will be returning to the show. Sort of, <laughs> he will be returning as the Fifth Doctor, which is awesome news. Uh, but it will be part of the Children in Need special airing in November, which means that it is a uh, not a full length episode; it's a small clip. Um, if the last Children in Need uh, Doctor Who special was any indication, it'll be done by the regular production crew on the regular sets with all the costumes and the whole bit. And we've even heard that Stephen Moffat is writing uh, this little mini multi-Doctor story, but the fifth Doctor and the tenth Doctor, and possibly other Doctors. And, and, I, and I add that caveat, even though there hasn't been um, any official... Uh, news, and for that matter, any rumors of more than just the two, uh, David Tennant and Peter Davison doctors. But the news first leaked through Sylvester McCoy, which leads me to believe that someone contacted him about it. So do not be surprised if if um, there is more than just the Davison doctor involved in this. Mm-hmm. And then Lewis and I were speaking last night saying that if they made the Children in Need special a multi-doctor story every single year with a different other doctor, Davison this year, McCoy next year, Colin Baker, uh, uh, Paul McGann. We would have something really special to look forward to each and every year 
for the children in need special. And it's sort of outside the official canon, but part of the canon is like, you know, it's it's the perfect it's the perfect uh, place to do something like this because it isn't part of the show officially. And it's well, also very short and very and it makes it special. It doesn't mm-hmm. just you know, it doesn't go on and on. It's just a little thing, a little teaser, and then you move past it. Yeah. Well, the, the last Children in Need um, story, if you will, uh, episode, if you will, was um, took place on board the TARDIS right after Doctor Number Nine and, and Doctor Number Ten. Uh, well, obviously it was Doctor Number Ten, David Tennant. Um, Took it was basically the the tra- um, bridging the gap between Parting of the Ways and um, uh, was it the Christmas Invasion? No, is that yeah? yeah that's the title. Was. So it kind of filled in the gap that's in between there, and um, even though it didn't really give you anything new, and you probably can get by watching the series without it, it it's it's still I would consider that part of the storyline. I would consider that part of canon. Uh, whereas uh, Curse of the Fatal Death and other past, um, well, I guess that would really be it. Really. Well, the other one was um, that John Nathan Turner thing. <laughs> the uh, uh, Dimension, Dimension of Time, which definitely yeah. is not canon. Yeah, so whether, you know, I'm, we can only assume that since Stephen Moffat's on board, uh, supposedly, allegedly, and, um, you know, that, that this will maybe follow the same style that the the last children need um, mini episode did. Yes, but that's not again. That's, it can't, it's not necessarily a hundred percent true because he wrote the Curse of the Fatal Death. Well, that's what I'm saying. Was, we don't know. We, we we're, we're only so speculating. Which, uh, and, you're, you're right. And to be uh, this this fuels the fire, fuels the rumor that that uh, Stephen Moffat uh, may be the man in line to succeed Russell T Davies when that time comes. Yeah. Again, it's all speculation. speculation. So, um, I mean, we we don't even have a confirmation, definitely, you know, about Peter Davison returning. And so, but um, hey, it was in Lewis. It was in the Sun. I know. It has to be true. <laughs> Absolutely, the caveat of all knowledge and the pinnacle of British journalism. Yeah. <laughs> um, other. Casting murmurs this uh, this past week was which I one which I found very strange was that um, and and I'm, I don't have the information in front of me. I'm hoping that maybe you guys can help me out. Um, the the actor that was in Human Nature and uh, the um, Family of Blood who played um, um, that that creepy guy <laughs> that narrows it down. Yeah, thanks, Lewis. That, that helped us out a lot. <laughs> Hold on. He's the guy who played Baines. Baines, yeah. Uh, because every, you know, you know, a week, you know, anytime a, a new week starts, there's a new rumor who's going to be the next doctor. And um, so I, I've been hearing rumors that um, that that he's now in um, a a Harry prospect Lloyd. for uh, Doctor Number Eleven, which Harry um, Lloyd. Yeah. I, Harry Lloyd. I, if yeah. that's his name, yeah, I know. If that's the case, it's um they, they're going much younger. <laughs> yeah, much younger. There goes my theory about you know let's let's get a um you know maybe like someone in their fifties playing the doctor, but I, I, I guess that's not to be if that's the case. 
But uh, I guess that if he is a, such a high-quality actor, then, uh, you know, in Russell we trust, of course. So, uh, Or it could just be complete, you know, something that's just thrown in there to uh, stir things up a little bit or whatever. It seems that, that that's the one place that, and we, you know, we mentioned only a couple podcasts ago, that it seems that all the rumors that we would hear for season three all turned out to be true. The one place I can say that the rumors seem to never be correct is in the whole rumored to be the new doctor, rumored to be the new doctor. I mean, is there a male um, citizen of Britain that isn't rumored to be the doctor? James Norton? No, no. James has been rumored to be the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) If they want a really handsome doctor. Ken, you fucking me, please. <laughs> Your wife calls the current doctor Dr. Hottie. How could I ever live up to that? I don't know. I'll have to get you on screen and find out. <laughs> yeah, so um, there you have it. That's um, another oh, yeah. one of these... Um, does, that, uh, does that tackle our news? I don't know. Do yeah. you guys have anything that you want to bring up? I mean, there's you know, DVD release dates info and that type of stuff. Um, I, I was, I, I haven't really been following the news too closely this past week, so I was, um, if that's it, then we'll move on. Yeah, there's been loads of little stories, but I think we've kind of covered them, the mainly the interesting ones. And, of course, uh, please do regularly check out our partners uh, over at uh, DoctorWhoNews.com. That's over at Outpost Gallifrey, if you just uh, type in that URL. We'll get there with all the, the, the latest news and they're incredibly uh, good at updating that page and uh, ensuring that it has the most accurate information. So. And normally, you know, normally for, for DVD releases here in, in the States, I go to um, Doctor Who and the video website of Evil, but it just seems that lately it hasn't been updated as, as frequently as it normally is. It's normally you know, right on top of things when it comes to the release schedule, but uh, currently not up to date. So mm-hmm. there is a link of course at uh at podshock.net or gallifreyembassy.org. And just a quick reminder that we're having a myspace.com membership drive if you're a member of we are. myspace.com, the social network. Look up uh, look up Doctor Who Podshock and add us as a friend or if you know anybody who is a Doctor Who fan amongst your friends if you're already there. Uh, send them a link to, to add us as a friend and uh, perhaps even put us in your top friends. Give us a lot of love. It's a way of getting word out about the uh, the podcast. And yeah. Much joy there. Much joy. Guys, I would like to sneak in one little news item if I can. Yes, please do. Uh, uh, we've come as close as we can get without having actually done it to getting a um, confirmation on the start of Sarah Jane Adventures. Um, it does appear that in the latest issue of Doctor Who magazine um, that we have Russell T. Davies or um, Gareth Roberts, one of the two of them, confirming that it's going to start in late September. We don't have a time slot yet, but that's the hardest news that we've gotten so far on when it's actually going to begin. Yeah, it's, um, at, you know, at least we've right got something to point. shoot for, at least uh, – not an exact date, but a general, you know, time area, time slot. And, and right around the corner, which is nice. It'll be a bit of a holdover to get us into um, 
you know, the, the Christmas uh, special and, and the Children in Need special. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a, a live call-in show, so I want to remind our listeners how to call in. Please uh, dial 724-444-7444. That's, um, that's the, this is being hosted via TalkShoe, and uh, you can, uh, when you dial in, you can get a, t- well, first of all, you might want to get a, t- a free TalkShoe um, membership um, ID, whatever, and you'll enter your 10-digit PIN, um, the TalkCast ID number for our show is 23358, and, um, and then you'll be live on, you know, with us. And uh, once you're on board, if you're using uh, um, the TalkShoe uh, chat client, you just can raise your hand by putting yourself in the queue, and then we know to, um, that, that you want to um, be on the show. So I encourage all our listeners to give us a call. It's... Um, We've been doing these live shows uh, now. Now we're on our every other week schedule. So it's today is um, August the 25th, I believe, or the 26th. 26th, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, so adjust your schedules. We're doing William Hartnell this week. And in two weeks, it's uh, Patrick Troughton, doctor number two, and then John Pertwee, doctor number three, and so forth. Yeah, figure so, it out from there. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have, uh, if you go to talkshoe.com, we have um, upcoming shows there. We have a few upcoming shows already slotted in, but you can figure out. You know, you don't have to be you don't have to be Adric to uh, be able to calculate when uh, your favorite doctor may be being discussed. And you're probably better off not being Adric. <laughs> uh, two quick shameless plugs before we go into uh, our William Hartnell discussion. One is uh, don't forget that um, Podshock has. Uh, different things available uh, for sale in both the United States and in the UK, and for that matter, around the world. Um, uh, T-shirts and sweatshirts and things like that to show your support. We're getting ready to go to Gallifrey in Los Angeles in February 2008, and then Icon in April of 2008 here in Stony Brook. So it's a great way of supporting the show, uh, both by showing the entire world that you're a Podshock fan and a Doctor Who fan, and it's also a way of helping uh, the proceeds from the, the shirts or the merchandise, go back into helping keep up the, uh, the podcast and keep up the website and, uh, and help Lewis drive around in a limousine and have his private beer <laughs> jet. Yeah. <laughs> and for all those that are, have been writing, uh, a few of you have written in about, about um, concerning Gallifrey in, in February, and um, we, we're still kind of working out the details and we're waiting to hear back from the convention organizers and uh, hopefully we'll have more information about particulars um, concerning our podcast there uh, very shortly. So, um, but I, I do want to thank everyone's interest in that. So um, we're very psyched and excited about it. So, yeah. yeah. Once again, it it it, uh, it takes us by surprise the the response that we had. You know, we figured we'd say we would be there and look forward to you know doing something, and and then out of nowhere, you know, the, the through the feedback uh, at podchalk.net. Uh, people writing in, hey, it's great that you guys are going to be going and stuff like that. And it's just like, wow, really? <laughs> it takes us by surprise. But but that's great. And we're looking forward to meeting everybody in person. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So let's uh, stop. That, let's talk about William Hart now. Step into the TARDIS and uh, let's go back to 1963. Um, as the, I want to also thank Dave and, and also Darth Skeptical, as always, who does these wonderful intros. Uh, and Dave provided that other audio clip that was, um, I believe, from 30, if, if I'm not mistaken, that was from one of the documentaries. 30, I think might have been 30 Years in the TARDIS. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And 
Yes. So fantastic stuff. Thank you both. Um, so I, as I was just about to say, it was that that weekend where uh, President um, I almost said Lincoln, <laughs> President Kennedy was shot and uh, assassinated. And it also, um, you know, it was the same weekend where the first episode of uh, Doctor Who uh, was transmitted as well, which I believe, if I recall correctly, they transmitted it again the following week just because uh-huh. of all the confusion. And because probably, of all the news coverage. Yeah, probably a lot of people weren't tuning into Doctor Who at the time. I believe they ran them back-to-back. They, they ran part one and part two mm-hmm. back-to-back, but uh, there, are, there are better people than me to, to uh, give that as a definite answer, being I wasn't there. And it ushered in a whole new series that we know and love called Doctor Who, and um, piloting that that show was uh, William Hartnell, in a sense, um, playing the lead character, the Doctor, uh, and if and I know we, we put a poll on our website as far as how many of our uh, visitors have had the opportunity to catch the William Hartnell episodes, at least those that exist. And um, I, I know not everyone is familiar with these early episodes. And if you do have a chance, I really do recommend uh, catching them. And also, um, the William Hartnell, I mean, the, the first, um, a lot of people may get a perhaps a negative vibe with William Hartnell at first, if, especially if you're watching some of the very earlier episodes, because he was very, um, I guess, crotchety, if you will. And But, I mean, if you stick with it... Um, his character does develop a little bit more and he does warm up, if you will. And uh, I, I think a lot of the characteristics of the doctor that, that, that that's consistent through all the gen- regenerations of the doctor really have their roots there with William Hartnell as the first doctor and, and um, the principles that, 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 that guide him and um, his, um, his, his caring and his, um, Doctorness, if you will, <laughs> I think you really once... come to see it in, in its full light by like the second season, where yeah. he has a little more humor and and he's a little less crotchety. And yeah. and quite honestly, I I think it's really when he ditched Susan that he all of a sudden became a funny guy. It's like <laughs> well, now that my granddaughter's not here, I can really be a wise guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to have this uh, other image for his uh, for Susan. Um, well, like a sense of responsibility, but once mm-hmm. she leaves. He's like the funniest guy through the second season with one-liners and, and, and daring do, where in the first season he, he was a little, more, um, a little more conservative, if I can use that word. He, he, would, he would restrict himself from, from getting into danger trying to protect her. But once she was gone, he was gung-ho, and the Romans, he even picked a fight. So um, early... William Hartnell and, and, and early Doctor Who, people really underestimate how groundbreaking this was. Um, Star Trek thinks that it has a lock on the whole two-pilot science fiction show thing, but Doctor Who actually had two pilots as well. They, they recorded The Unearthly Child um, in September of 63 and then re-recorded it um, a month or so later to make a more polished version ready for air, but they did cut a pilot almost identical to the one that actually aired. Uh, To me, this was brilliance, maybe even accidental brilliance, in that they had a chance to refine that very first episode. And there's a rhythm and a pacing and and a cinematic quality to it 
that actually even disappears by the next episode. But that very first pilot has a, a, a great mood to it and a great tone to it, and they, they got a lot of bugs worked out by doing what essentially amounted to a, a dress rehearsal only a few months earlier. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Lewis was mentioning about some of the talent behind the show. I mean, that it was revolutionary at the time that Verity Lambert, was, she was the first female producer, uh, television producer, I, I believe, in the world. I know definitely at the BBC, but pro- possibly even in the world. Um, that, was, that was way ahead of its time. Um, Vidal Sassoon was the, the hairdresser on the show. I mean, if he doesn't look good, we don't look good. And uh, almost, uh, you had Raymond Cusick as being one of the designers. Yeah, I was just going to mention him myself. I, uh, I think... We almost had Ridley Scott on board. Uh, yeah. If it wasn't for one production running mm-hmm. overboard uh, a month earlier, uh, Ridley Scott would have been involved in the show. And, uh, you know, we, we know he's gone on to do a few good things. So, really? Uh, That's <laughs> The level of the, the, the talent level that was involved in getting what amounted to uh, a tea time children's show on the air is extraordinary. It really is. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of people, a, a lot of new Doctor Who fans may dismiss the Hartnell, Hartnell era and maybe even the Troutman era because of its black and white, because it was, it was um, by, by production standards, it seems very, very cheap. Uh, it, it seems live, and, and, and essentially it really was. It was a recorded live show, as Lewis mentioned. There was really no way to stop and start. Edits were costly. Uh, it was very difficult to, to do remounts. So, um, they would just keep things going. And, and part of that added to the magic of the show, because Hartnell, if you fluffed the line or whatever, uh, or any of the actors, but I, I say particularly William Hartnell because he made the most of it, um, it, was, it seemed very natural for an older man perhaps to fumble a word or, or search for something that, that he wanted to say. Uh, you know, he would, he would stop for a second and pause and maybe mumble a little bit while he was searching for something to say, and it seemed very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Where absolutely. Not scripted. It's not scripted. It didn't seem like everything had to flow perfectly, and, and to me that only added to the realism of, of the show. And we talked about this in, in a podcast many moons ago that they did, they did with, uh, uh, they did, they had a budget at the time that is equal to today's catering budget yeah. on most modern shows. They well, they now they now serve hot food for lunch um, with more money than they made an entire half hour episode of Doctor Who in 1963. Yeah, well, it's. Um... I, I, it was in one of the uh, I, those early uh, Doctor Who books that that came out in the eighties, um, and and one of them made a point of mentioning that um, at that time, one episode of Star Trek, the original series, uh, had a budget that was, um, you know, that 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 would that that was uh, bigger than what Doctor Who had for the whole entire series, you know, for the whole entire season. The whole year, yeah. yeah. That is and, pretty. And, and by... when you think about it. By modern television standards, the old Star Trek series is considered to be cheesy. Yeah, well, you know, and I mean, really for what they had to work with, and um, I mean, they did some groundbreaking stuff for television uh, for the BBC at that time. I mean, the 
the the um the music alone the the what we you know love and cherish the the theme ron green um you know and and um dyla um yeah yes yeah um I mean, it's incredible work. I mean, it's what they had to do to edit that. I mean, they didn't have the convenience of computers, and they were actually slicing um, audio tape and putting it together. And um, it's it's really outstanding what they were able to do and uh, doing a video feedback to get that opening credit scene. And um, they they really did outstanding work for what they had to work with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, considering today, on, just on your laptop, you have. 100 times the sophistication of video editing that they had compared to what they had in 1963. Uh, you know, back then, just to make one single edit in film uh, in this particular production was extraordinarily difficult. And now today you can do it on the fly. They, they do it in live sporting events. So the, the comparisons are just, you know, the, much like people who, who study the Beatles, as an example, you know, of uh, being ahead of their time in production techniques, Doctor Who, London and, and, and the UK must have been such an extraordinary place at the time, in the early 60s, with the, the birth of the, 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 uh, the British rock and roll scene and uh, the, the birth of James Bond and Doctor Who and all these things that were going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all rubbish now, but I mean, back then it was, no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing going on in the UK today, but I mean, back then, this no, I'm only kidding. Of course, back then it was quite a swinging place. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> nothing ever happened. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, Ken, you had mentioned um, Raymond Kusick, uh, who was the production designer, um, and he doesn't really get enough credit in my in my eyes. But I mean, oh if, no, I agree. When you think of the creator of the Daleks, he has to come. You know, along with Terry Nation, he developed the. I mean, Terry Nation had a very vague written description of what the Daleks were, and really Raymond Kruzak really brought it to life, and um, yeah. and 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 it continues today. The Daleks that we see today are really unchanged for the most part. Yeah, they're more detailed and you know slightly modifications. I mean, throughout the whole history of Doctor Who, the Daleks, and especially the Cybermen, have. Um, evolved you know but they're essentially i mean the daleks are essentially the same design that they originally were and mm -hmm. it's to his credit you know back in 1963 this was the second story of doctor who you know if you if you consider um the unearthly child and trial of gum one story if you, this is really you know this was the second story and it wasn't if it wasn't for this um i mean it's funny because um sydney newman had at that time said you know no bug eye monsters in the series and the, it was really the series was launched under the um guise if you will as a educational series where it could go into the future to explore science and then into the into the past to explore history and to kind of educate the audience on both the, on those two elements and 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 44 some odd years later i'm still waiting for them to explore science <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so yeah. I, I, it's I, I, again to to his credit, and um, he, he was just on salary, so he got none of the, um, you know, he, he wasn't paid royalties for all the Dalek merchandising because at that time in 1963, that was the birth of Dalek mania, if you will, and um, and and even the Daleks now, you can't 
if, if you're like a big Dalek fan, I mean, if you go, if you search the history of, of, of the Daleks, the, 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 I guess the, the one doctor most associated with the Daleks is William Hartnell is the first doctor, which that. Well, yeah, the in. most, the most yeah. confrontations, you know, uh, the Dalek master plan uh, up until the trial of a time Lord was, was the, was the benchmark for epic doctor who stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what else? What, what else? Um, anyone have to say about the about this series of, of this time? We haven't heard from Darth Skeptical much today. That's true. Um, I think one of the most remarkable things about the William Hartnell era is the extent of its variety. Um, you had in Verity Lambert uh, a woman who was intensely creative for a producer. Um, she had a grasp of uh, understanding of narrative and um, employed that knowledge in such a way that from one story to the next, you were constantly seeing things that were different. She was trying to define the show as a show more or less without definition. Um, so you would go from episodes that were historical to episodes that were um, science fiction themed and, and back again. And she was quite willing to employ people who may not have exactly her own model for what the show should have been. For instance, the hiring of Dennis Spooner in the second season, uh, that's largely responsible for what um, Kim was talking about in the, the migration of the Hartnell character. Um, it's, it's Dennis Spooner that really um, injects humor into the series for the first time, and that was something that very limited at first, had resisted. Um, but then once it had started, she embraced it and allowed it to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that there is so distinctly creative a period in Doctor Who um, until the modern era, where it was almost mandated that you did something absolutely different with each serial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as we get into later Hartnell season, especially season three, um, you start seeing maybe that going a little bit awry in that suddenly you have a a ton of different uh, companions. Season three has the record still for the most number of companions in a single season. And um, you see there a period where producers were just trying people on until they finally found what they wanted. In fact, I'm not sure that they actually did find what they wanted. They just kept bringing people in. And if you consider that against the stability of the earlier seasons, um, it's kind of remarkable that the, the two dichotomies exist within the span of one doctor's era. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a, there's a point there in that third season, as you were mentioning about the, the multiple companions, and then eventually the the um, the change from Hartnell to Troughton, where the show really could have um, could have just come to a grinding halt. That that really was probably the most crucial period in in Doctor Who's history as far as having a future till 1989, when the when the whole Michael Grade fiasco happened. That third season was a, was was a um, sort of a Tipping point. We, you could have the show could have been canceled at that point. The, the fact that you see such drastic changes. Mm-hmm. 
um, it's pro and it's con. It made it made for some very unique television, as Doss had mentioned. It, it was, they were doing some things that you know, had never been done before and have never been done since on Doctor Who, uh, and the amount of characterization, the amount of, of, of supporting characters and things like that. Um, but I think they were just grasping at straws at, at that point. To me, the the highlight of, of Hartnell's era is his second season. Like I said, mostly because he got a chance to be a little more humorous and a little less crotchety, and and it's probably close, most closely resembles what we currently know as the Doctor. Uh, is that that middle season of his, that second season, some of the humor that uh, Hartnell was allowed to inject into the into his character was is priceless to this day. You know, some of the things. Yeah, like I, said, I think the, one of the more interesting things about the first season is that it, it's quite unique in that you have uh, a story arc, more or less, with the TARDIS crew, where there's a gradual acceptance of the two new members of the TARDIS uh, mm-hmm. crew over the course of several different stories, so that there's character development there that's definitely going from one point where Ian and Barbara are interlopers and uh, very much not trusted by the doctor and they don't trust him until finally you get uh, to a period where they really genuinely like each other. By the time you get to the Romans, um, it's having a, period a, great of a time. different. Yeah, it is. And I wouldn't trade that for just the second season. The second season isn't so good without this period of adjustment. Mm-hmm. It's, fast, it's fascinating, really, to me, where the Doctor starts off. I mean, just very dour, very suspicious, very much not like the Doctor that we're used to now, and how he gradually comes into this um, more friendly character is fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. And that also like, comes to a head with, I think, the Edge of Destruction, where you know, even at that point, they were still not trusting everyone and because, um, you know, strange things were going on. And, you know, it's, I, I think that really showed the character development. And um, and then, as you said, um, then you go into the second series and it's, um, you know, they, they, they've warmed up to each other and they're really like a sense of family. But it was like, it wasn't immediate. It was a gradual process. But even Ian, Ian and Barbara were still trying to get home throughout the first season, as I start saying, there was a story arc there. Mm-hmm. I watched the first episode of, of Reign of Terror in preparation for today, and even there, they were like, you know, okay, we're leaving, you know, you know you're dropping us off, right? And there was still that edge all the way to the last story of the first season, so that was something that, that extended throughout the season. They didn't just let go of that. Perhaps they, they warmed up to each other or accepted the travels. Then in the second season, Ian, uh, Ian and, and Barbara are a little more like, "Hey, here we are. We're along for the ride. You know, let's go. What are we going to go see next, Doctor?" Um, but in that first season, they were still trying to get off. They were still trying to leave uh, every chance they had. You know, are we back on Earth yet? Let's go home. Yeah. So um, William Hartner stayed uh, three years, right, until uh, 1966, and um, then there was the. In, in fact, it was a, a Cyberman story, if I if I remember correctly, that that saw his la- which his last his swan song, if you will, his last story, and um, ushered in you know the regeneration process. And we didn't see William Hartnell as um, playing the first Doctor um, until um, the tenth anniversary with the three Doctors. And 
his health had um, unfortunately had um, you know um, he had some health problems where he just couldn't really keep the grueling schedule of um, you know that doctor he was and um, I think we lost him uh, just a, a few years after um, that tenth anniversary um, story the three doctors. Well, it was really great that he had the ability even just to make it in. I know they sent a camera crew to his home and, and filmed uh, filmed the, the, the shots of him walking around uh, in his own garden and put on his costume and walked around in his own backyard. And uh, just great to have even that little bit of him you know, back in the show. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it made that episode that much more special. It, it's interesting, too, that uh, Hartnell's doctor is probably the most imitated doctor when you think of it that Peter yes. Cushing did two movies mm-hmm. and then you had Richard Herndell impersonating him in The Five Doctors. No other doctor, including Tom Baker, the most popular doctor uh, in the world, no one has imitated the doctor more than the William Hartnell doctor. Uh, you know, he's the guy that, that everybody seems to keep pointing to, including Peter Davison. When he first took over the role, he, he was a, a fan of Hartnell and Troughton and, and tapped into that with a little bit of the, the crotchety attitude and, yeah. uh, and even the multi-companion uh, uh, stories yeah. in, in early in Davidson's era was very much a, a nod to the Hartnell era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Colin Baker did the same thing where, you know, he wanted um, that, that, that aggressiveness of the first Doctor, he incorporated into his doctor as well. Yeah. So, yeah, but, um, we, as you just mentioned, we had William um, Hundrell, no, um, Richard Hundrell, playing mm-hmm. Doctor Number One again in The Five Doctors. And um, I know the, many of the cast, and I mean, he did an all right job and all that. Um, I, I, I know a lot of the cast said, oh, it was just like um, William Hartnell was there again. But I, I, I think... I don't know. I, I, in my opinion, that they, they had these two distinct looks. I mean, uh, facial um, construction, that is. And, but, I mean, I, you know, he, he still, you know, did an okay job, I think. Well, it, it, at the time, I know many of the, uh, many of the reviews of the five doctors uh, were, were um, some hardcore Doctor Who fans were very critical of, of Richard Herndell and his performance. And, and quite honestly... It is what it is. It's a, yeah. it's a characterization. It's a, it's, a, it's a portrayal of somebody else. Uh, he stepped up to the plate. He did a, a fine job. Uh, he tried to encapsulate the essence of what the first Doctor was in yeah. order to make the story believable. And from a believability point of view, he does a fine job. Is yeah. he William Hartnell? No. And, and you know yeah. what? One thing I will say in his credit, he never tried to take that place. He always knew his place, that he was portraying William Hartnell, portraying the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, so um, James, did you have anything that you wanted to chime no, in I on? No, I think it's basically uh, everything that I had. I'd written some brief notes here, and everything I want to kind of discuss has been discussed. What I do want to say, though, is for the newbies out there, who uh, find themselves to be Doctor Who fans, um, for heaven's sakes, get out there and watch the first Doctor. 
because really this is where it all began. There's a new beginnings box set that you can go out and buy if you're unsure about which stories to go out and buy first. Get that box set, watch it, and appreciate it because um, you know it's it's very important to kind of understand where the series came from. I think as a whole, and don't let the fact that I mean Ken's kind of highlighted the fact that maybe because it's so old and and um, because you kind of have to get your head into the right mindset to watch it before you do, that might put people off. But as long as you're willing to kind of keep an open mind and and uh, you know just take it for what it is, you will enjoy it and you will find it a real hoot and realize just what a rich history this television show has, really. Um, there, there, are certain, there are certain pieces of television history that need to be appreciated and sometimes are difficult to be done. For example, early Doctor Who, black and white Doctor Who, uh, early Star Trek, the old Batman with Adam West and, and Burt Ward. You know, there's something to be said for those things. Yeah, they're not perfect. They're, they're, you know, they're campy. They're cheesy. Use the word you will use. Low mm. budget. Whatever you want to call it. B-movie. B B-movie. Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> campiness. But they exist. They existed for a reason, and we have the things we have today because of them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this show would not exist and is only allowed to be as extraordinary as it is because of what happened in 1960. Yeah. Well, speaking of existing, I know we touched upon this in, in a past pod, Chuck, um, and I think one of the, and, and speaking of television history, I mean, and one of the elements that's, um, I guess, special about the remaining existing episodes is that with William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton, we have so many lost stories, so many uh, stories and episodes that just don't exist anymore, um, at least in a video form. And, and so it makes those that are remaining of, that's available to us even that much more special because it, we can appreciate that they exist and they were found and we have an opportunity to watch them, whereas many of the other stories um, only exist in audio format now, and, and there's no way to, you know, um, with with aside from reconstructions and um, other ways to kind of visualize it. Um, hopefully, one day they'll get treatment just like the um, the couple episodes from Pat and Troughton's um, Invasion DVD did with um, animation. That would be fabulous. But um, right now, we only have what's existing, and I think that's what makes it even more valuable. Well, Lewis, just in the time that you and I have been Doctor Who fans, which is a little over 20 years, we've discovered uh, um, episodes that we thought we would never get. We thought we would get tricklings of one or two parts here and there, and we found entire stories, such as the Tomb of the Cybermen. Uh, we've found a good chunk of the Ice Warriors, as an example. So we've been lucky that they're continuing to be found. And, and kudos to the, to the men and women who are out there looking for these things and restoring them and, and actively seeking to find these episodes. And, you know, the Dalek Master Plan Part 2 was discovered a couple years ago. I mean, I, prior to that, it was almost 10 years since it, uh, an episode was discovered. Mm -hmm. Just when you think that they're not looking for them anymore, one pops up. But we also have representations now on audio. They're extraordinary. They're very well put together. The, the, the quality of the cleanliness of the recordings 
uh, are top-notch. There's excellent narration to it. So they, they are alive. They are there to be appreciated in, in, in a form, if not the original form. But to part of what makes these errors special, Hartnell and Troughton, are those missing episodes. It makes it that much, makes the things that we have that much more special, yeah. more, more mm -hmm. important to appreciate. Yeah, that's what I was saying, exactly. It's, uh, it's only a shame that, just as an example, a story like The Dominators of Patrick Troughton's exists in its, in its completed form and not a drop of Fury from the Deep, which is a superior story. It's just it's just sad that in some cases, um, the best of the, some some of the best works are lost, and some of the weakest episodes have remained. But we don't have a you know we we wasn't it wasn't our choice. It happened the way it happened. We're just blessed that we still have the original pilot and the original Dalek stories and uh, and you know imagine if they were lost. Yeah, yeah. Um, Merlin Olson. Um a.k.a. Mike, in our chat session, uh, wanted to make a note that um, you can find some of the reconstructions at uh, recons.com. That's R-E-C-O-N-S.com. There's, there's a few few places, and we, we, I think we have links to them in our um, links section. If we don't, uh, you know, feel free to add the links. I know I, I, have, I added the loose cannon one myself. I know there are other groups that do it, and... and um, um, there's some discussion as to you know who's done uh, better versions, found cleaner stills or, or cleaner audio. Uh, um, this is something that, as a matter of fact, in in, a, in the Hartnell era and the Troughton era um, area of the forums, if someone wants to start up a post about um, perhaps you know suggestions and, and debates over uh, which versions of the various episodes are the best. I did happen to see a, uh, a colorized uh, reconstruction of Marco Polo that I thought was really interesting. I thought that was good fun. Mm -hmm. I enjoy the reconstructions, by the way. I, I absolutely adore them. And, and, and once again, bravo to the people who have the time and the patience, the, the loving care that they put into trying to bring a classic Doctor Who story alive again for us. Mm -hmm. This is... Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, there's. Uh, I, I gotta thank them. They're just, just saintly. Yeah. Now we're fortunate that there's a lot of passionate people out there, you know, working steadfastly on, on Doctor Who, and um, you know, that's um, what's great about Doctor Who fandom, and um, you know, we see it all the time, and so. Uh, and, we, and, in, we, and in fairness, Doctor Who wasn't the only one that suffered from this this purging of the BBC archives. I mean, there are classic television performances of, of um, dramatic series and uh, performances of, of Shakespearean plays and all, just all manner of programming that was lost simply because they didn't have storage space. Yeah, they didn't have, they didn't have the foreknowledge that people were going to you know, want to see this stuff you know, 20 years in the future. You know, they, it, this was just like, um, I guess they saw it as fodder that they were just giving out, you know, at the time to the television audiences and, you know, and television was still in its infancy. So, um, you know, who knew syndication you know, and all that stuff was just, um, nowadays they keep a, a, a television show on the air to make a certain amount of episodes to syndicate it. Yeah. And it was a show that had an abundance of episodes and they couldn't get rid of them fast enough. They've taken 
they've 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 saved shows that are failing just to get enough episodes to syndicate it and make the money back in syndication. Yeah, and, and it was here's a show on, that they just said, hell with it, so let's throw out the episode. And it was on videotape, so they figured, well, it's economical. You can record over videotape, unlike film, and uh, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I, that probably was um, the fate of the of these episodes. You know what is to me is very bizarre about these things is that they they purged videotape copies of episodes and yet um, audio recordings of the episodes or strictly music tracks music cues remained and all these you know production notes and scripts and the budget records for some of these things are still in a file cabinet somewhere yet the actual episode doesn't exist. Well, some of the audio, again, we, we have to credit the fans. Um, some of these episodes exist on audio because there were fans um, that, that before VCRs were around, they were recording these things off the television set using an audio recorder so that they could kind of relive these episodes. And uh, to their credit, you know, the, um, you know we've had um, Mark Ayers on the phone, on, the, on, our sh- on our show before and spoke about, you know, the, the, the grueling process of cleaning up this audio and, and restoring it, and uh, these audio engineers did an outstanding job with uh, the material they had and picking out the best of what was available to reconstruct these um, these episodes. And uh, I'm very thankful that that these fans were doing that. You know, I, I know before I got my first VCR and um, back in the '70s, I had an audio cassette recorder, and I was like recording stuff off television as well. You know, th- thankfully, you know, th- th- none of that stuff, you know you know, needed to be reconstructed or anything like that. <laughs> I don't know if I, those tapes still exist in my, in I my think library. I have a cassette of the uh, Star Wars holiday special. Yeah, I did too. Uh, yeah. And, and, and by the way, not needed to be reconstructed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but, we're, uh, we're going to, um, we, we're going to go to uh, a caller. In fact, uh, we're going to, it's a, a regular of ours and he was, um, if I'm not mistaken, he was there to, um, Watching the first Doctor live in person when it's first it first transmitted. So, usher it onto our screens. Yeah, so let, let's see um, what Dave in uh, Manchester has to say about that. Hello, Dave. Hi, Lewis. Hi, um, how are you doing? Well, is the volume okay today? Because I'm on Skype this time. You sound great. Okay. Yeah, it sounds hey. crystal clear. Yeah, it's costing me money now, James. It's costing me money. Oh. <laughs> I know. You're uh, such a dedicated fan. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, uh, I, I watched the first one and I've talked about it before. I mean, there were very sad events surrounding that. The um, That little intro of mine, which uh, you played, and you quite right, it was from uh, 30 years in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Oh, uh, and I believe that was Nicholas Courtney narrating it, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. The Brigadier was uh, narrating that for a bit. Uh, but yeah. I was trying to get around the fact that when I recorded that, so as we know, the the Doctor Who went down a day late. But I'm sure they printed those radio times weeks in advance, so I can't get my head around the memory of how come it was um, in the radio times on that day, but shown a day later. But um, it certainly was, because, of course, it was such a tragic event, and uh, we, uh, we've talked about it before. Weeks and weeks and weeks went on where it overshadowed everything, and uh, you know, people mm-hmm. in America were buying um, air raid shelters, nuclear shelters, the lot. I mean, uh, it really were difficult days. But not to dwell on that today, because 
I think this should be really a celebration, this episode today, because it's the debt we owe to um, the first Doctor, uh, because without uh, his portrayal and the way he did it, and, and ably acted and helped with um, the, the two companions, what brilliant two companions he started with, with Ian and Barbara. But just before I talk about that, just quickly, I've spent today in Manchester at um, the Science Museum where they have the Doctor Who Up Close exhibition because they were having a mass gathering of Daleks. And you talked about this earlier on in this episode about um, them appearing in the second story of the first Doctor. And the actual designer, not, not the creator, um, but the actual designer of uh, the Daleks, was the guest of honour today. Raymond Raymond, that's right, he was mm-hmm. there. And I've, in the chat that uh, the people who are listening to us live, I've actually posted a, a link up to the Gallifrey Forum where I've just put up one picture of him chatting to one of the fans. Um, I've taken lots of photos and some um, video that I'll try and get up uh, on my website or somewhere, YouTube, uh, in the next few days. But um, it, it was marvellous, and, and he chatted to the crowd, and he was absolutely amazed that the Daleks were still loved, you know, 40 years on. He was a very, very happy man. He was seemed to be very pleased to be there, and uh, the enthusiasm for which uh, people were there, in actual fact, they brought the Guinness Book of Records. They got uh, 68 Daleks all together, uh, with uh, oh, hundreds of people on looking, lots and lots of them young kiddies, quite a few of those dressed up as Daleks, and the range was marvellous. It went everything from the old tin foil on the washing basket with the <laughs> with the uh, with the rubber sticker out the front um, to um, really top quality ones that, that a lot of people thought were better than the BBC ones. Mm-hmm. Wow. There, was one, there was one lovely kid that caught my eye, very brave kid he was. <laughs> he turned up as uh, a Cyberman. <laughs> and then he was surrounded by six, 68 Daleks. Uh, he had his mum and dad with him. Yeah, he had his mum and dad with him, so he was quite, uh, he was quite lovely. But it was a really good day, and uh, hopefully I'll get those pictures up uh, uh, in the next few days. Great, uh, we're looking forward to them. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, one last thing about that. Um, if you are a listener here in from the UK, um, the television, uh, the ITV TV people were there uh, from the Granada region. So hopefully one of the local news pieces on Monday, uh, there'll be an item of that for you to watch. So look out for that if you're in the UK. Mm-hmm. And one last comment on that was, um, in actual fact, it was Nell coming. <laughs> he was asked about what he thought about the new Daleks. Uh, and the design of them, uh, and he gave no comments at all. So whether he didn't want to step on any of his shoes or whether he thought he should have been consulted, I don't know. But that's a long intro. I haven't even started yet, have I? Good God. Um, uh, I can't go on about uh, Catherine Tate anymore, can I? Because I've banged on enough myself. <laughs> well. um, but, uh, yeah, the William um, Hartnell, I mean, what I think... Uh, has given a real legacy to the Doctor Who is the fact that he played it as such a grumpy old person. And I feel that if he had started playing Doctor Who as a very likeable grandfather figure, you know, really, really nice, it wouldn't have really given actors that followed on from him anywhere to go because they would have 
the comparison to him would have been so, oh, he's not as nice as the old man, he's not as nice as the old man, that um, it would have been even harder for them to edge him to the part. But he gave them so much leeway that um, uh, they could they could range from everything from as, as nice as pie, um, who should we say, uh, Peter Davidson, his, his sort of betrayal, uh, to um, Colin Baker, who they perhaps got a lot of stick for his portrayal, but again, we've talked about this before, if he'd have been allowed to stay as a doctor for longer, uh, I think we would have come around to him a lot more. But in any mm. event, all these doctors hold the great events. And I remember reading or uh, seeing one story, I think it was one of his early companions, uh, or it might have even been the second doctor, talking about um, William Hartnell. Uh, it was about how he played the part. And viewers that have uh, seen him, um, he has also his hand gestures very close to his face. He's mm-hmm. touching his chin, he's touching his hair, yeah. uh, and he's waving his rings about. And uh, apparently he said in some interview, it's television, my dear. It's all about the face and the eyes. I have to get my hands close to my face, otherwise people would not see my expressions. It would all, all be missed. Mm-hmm. Because if you do remember... And I, you knew more than me there, Lewis, with the, the three-camera uh, system for recording them. But a lot of them were quite close-ups of his face. Yeah. So that's why he did all these little mannerisms. It was mm-hmm. his way of, uh, of, of giving characterization that would be picked up on the television. Absolutely. Where obviously the stage or elsewhere, it's the grand gestures that work. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't really talked about many of his stories, but just one or two that I'd like to pick out. Um, one of my favourites was Planet of the Giants. Now, I don't think it was particularly many people's ones, but um, this is one where they, they arrive and they're very small. And so, of course, all the sets are enormously large. Now, me being a, a long-time science fiction fan, I'd watched a film a few years back called The Incredible Shrinking Man. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I loved that film. And um, I thought it was excellent to see this sort of uh, uh, thing on the TV. And uh, I think, have we talked about this before, Lewis? Did it predate the land of the giants? I, you know what? You must have been reading my mind because I was just thinking the same thing as you said that. I, um, I, you know, Land of the Giants was um, Ern Allen's um, TV series in the '60s, and I, it was. Um, I think it does predate it because, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Land of the Giants started. It, it, Either 1966 or 67, if I'm not, I would have to look it up. But I, I in that, I think it's after Planet of the of the Giants, yeah. Well, William Hartnell finished about 66. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That I'm pretty sure William Hartnell's episode was predates um, that that television series. Yeah, and um, one of the other. Well, guys, in any case, the uh, Planet of the Giants was considered for one of the first stories. It, in fact, should have been the first story, as I understand it. So even though it didn't get made until the second season, it was actually slated for the first season originally. Sorry, just to, just to add to that, it was actually part of the first season recording block that I think they even did that. The first story they recorded for the second series was The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Right. Uh, uh, Merlin's just typed up, finally, of the day, uh, Giants precedes. Three dates, indeed. So, 
Uh, I don't know which way he means that round. Sorry, Merlin. I'm a bit thick on that one. Um, but just moving on, if I may, I love the time meddler. And, and one of the people I'd love to see coming back is the meddling monk. Mm, uh, I could not agree more. Another character actor at the time called Peter Butterworth, who um, he had a, a comedy um, TV show of his own, which I can't remember the name of at the moment. But um, I loved him, and I, I think he, he played a, you know, he, he was the sort of villain you liked. You know, he, he really was um, uh, quite a, a different idea to the master and the Riley and the others. But I thought um, he worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the first recurring villain. Right. One of the stories I liked... Oh, sorry about that. Um, was one that's going to upset a few people because they haven't seen it, and that was the Celestial Toymaker. Now, I love that story. Now, the trouble is, of course, the BBC wiped their tapes while old age is wiping my brain because... <laughs> Although I love the programme, it's very difficult to remember a lot about it, but I do remember one sequence, and if I don't whitter on too long, if I just uh, recount a little bit about it, um, the the companions are set uh, uh, tasked by this toy maker, but the doctor himself is set something called a trilogic game. Now, I was at, God, on the age again, I was at teacher training college at the time, and I was in my first year, and one of our duties was that um, next year's students were coming round this particular weekend um, to see if they wanted to come and, uh, you know, join our, uni- uh, our college. Uh, it was like an open day. And uh, for my sins, uh, it was a Saturday evening, or uh, Saturday late afternoon, uh, I was helping out in the mathematics room. And so showing the people the sort of things that we had uh, to offer and how we were helping people to become teachers. And it was the particular weekend that they'd shown this. Now, the trilogic game is actually a game called the Towers of Hanoi. It's a logic problem. Now, that might click a few members, that name. But if mm-hmm. I can briefly go on to it, and Lewis, stop me if I'm wishing on, please. I don't want to make a fool of myself. But um, the, toy, the Towers of Hanoi problem, which was set the doctor, and he wasn't allowed to make one false move. He had to do it in the minimum number of moves. You have three poles, and on one pole, in uh, descending order of size, are eight, um, uh, well, in these cases, there were wooden rings that fitted over the slot. So the largest one was at the bottom, then a smaller ring, and so you had eight, I think, stacked up. Then there was an intermediate post and a final post, and the problem was that you had to move the stack of rings from the first post to the second post, and you could use it, but you couldn't put one larger one on top of a smaller one. So in other words, um, to get the next to the top one across, you would move the top one to the intermediate post, then the second ring could be moved to the final post, and then you could pick the top uh, ring of the uh, intermediate post and put it on. That way you would have used move two of the things. But of course, as the sequence goes along, it gets more and more complicated because you have to first stack um, all eight. You have to end up with seven of them stacked on the intermediate so you can get the final bottom one across. And there's something like a thousand moves in it. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Cut a long shoulder store, and I was supposed to be showing these people around. And I, I noticed that we had this Charles of an arcade, and I spent about three and a half hours that afternoon solving that problem. Uh, and uh, so I wouldn't have done it in the 40 minutes of the episode. So, um, sorry about that little story, but um, <laughs> it, the pity is, I mean, obviously, with, with things like the Celestial Toy Maker and others, as we've said, a lot of the episodes are missing, but even when they now re show Doctor Who, and I think this is probably true in America as well. They all seem to start with robot. I don't know whether it's because they don't want to show uh, stories and then stick out, whether they think that a lot of people won't be receptive to the black and white ones. But perhaps somebody ought to chip in here. Is it true uh, that that robots are the one they usually start with, Lewis, when they uh, go back? Well, unfortunately, in, in the U.S. now, it's very rare to find any if you will, the classic, unquote, you know, quote, unquote, theories um, being shown at all. It, it, it seems that right now the only thing, um, with some exceptions, um, with um, it's it's all Christopher Eccleston onwards. So it, it's, um, I, I, I mean, to my chagrin, I wish they would be showing some of the classic series. And I, I would be delighted if they were showing Robot, but unfortunately they're not even showing that anymore uh, for the most part. You know, um, like I said, there's some exceptions, some rare PBS stations that may, um, I think there's that one in, um, I can't think of where now, uh, that, that, that's showing classics after who, but it's... Indiana, I think, has it. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's like three or four stations around the country that are still, still on the run. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, but... I really wish, because it's such a treasure, of, and, and unless you go out and buy the DVDs or rent the DVDs, you're not going to be exposed to it. And, and unless you're already a fan of Doctor Who, you, you, you come to appreciate the new series, you may not have any interest to pick up these old DVDs or rent them or anything. And um, I really wish they were out there for new generations to discover and, and, and treasure. And, you know, even if, um, even if it was robot, but yes, back in the day, back in the, in the, in the eighties, I would say before um, I think New Jersey network was one of the forerunners to, uh, start showing some of the classic series. You know, they, I think they were one of the first to get the John Pertwee series, and then they went back to William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton. Um, but before that, you, you, yeah, Tom Baker was the earliest that they would show. Right. And uh, I'm always talking a little bit longer because uh, there's no one else just waiting in the queue. But for the people outside the U.S., uh, Lewis, uh, has the third series come to an end now in the U.S., uh, the, the new ones? Um, it, it's probably towards now. the end. I, I am. I'm not Wait, watching it on the Sci-Fi Channel currently, but I, I, I think. <gasps> human, um, human, human nature was last night. Cute. Uh, uh, was it? Okay. Yeah. All right. So that that's really they're, they're they're getting towards the end. Right. So that would be an actual ideal time for them uh, in the next uh, month or so to go right back to robot if they can't do any earlier. And start because they, there's going to be a six month gap surely now in the states at least. The uh, the the Sci-Fi Network doesn't have um, doesn't have the rights uh, to any uh, of the classic Doctor Who. It's a separate package. Yeah. And uh, BBC America had Robot through. What did they show through Invasion of Time, Lewis? They did like something like that. Think, yeah, like the first four seasons yeah. of, of of Tom Baker. What what happened with classic Doctor Who in the states? This is my understanding through through um, a friend of mine who who works the distribution company is that the um, 
the distributor from, from the United States feels that classic Doctor Who doesn't properly represent, this is their, this is their word now, does not properly represent what the BBC, their, their model of what the BBC is. Which is interesting to me because Doctor Who is the ultimate in representation of what the BBC is all about. Enormous creativity exactly. with, uh, amongst the limitations that they have. And in and actual fact, what, what the, the, the actual remit was to educate the first Doctor Who stories, you know, was heavily towards historical, uh, you know, um, time zones, simply to, to, to have, have the educational element inbuilt to the story. What's sad about that is that they will continue to run Monty Python episodes, but not classic Doctor Who. And that's not a knock on Monty Python, but the point is classic Monty Python is just as um, crude, if you will, crude a television production as Doctor Who was. But because it's a comedy, it's allowed to get away with that. And because it's the splendid example of British humor, it's... It's something that is uh, regarded very highly, where now they, look, they view the new Doctor Who series as being the way they want to be represented, they, the way Doctor Who should be represented, that it can compete with uh, American science fiction television. And that's just very sad, very sad because they should really revel in their own history and show something in black and white and show something of the Hartnell era and say, look what we did with 7,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I really agree with that. I mean, it is the job of a television network to get ratings and to be competitive, and there's just no way that Classic Doctor Who is competitive with other shows that are on and being produced right now. Why shouldn't it? It's totally logical to me well, that CBC I... America should be taking this stance. Yeah, I mean, I don't really see it. I, I see it more in the um, have a marketplace in the in the PBS realm. You know, if tell you know viewer supported um, programming. You know, if if, if 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 we can like rewind back to the '80s when that's where you could find the classic series was really predominantly on PBS stations, and um, I'm not really looking for it to be on a commercial venue, really. I think that's really where it would excel best would be there. Yeah, and if it was on a commercial station, uh, for example, BBC America, there's there's no saying that it would be on in prime time, but there's 24 hours in a day for them to film with programming, and they don't necessarily have to repeat Jules Holland or, you know, the EastEnders or something. They can easily put fresh content in there. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Dave, I want to thank you for your insight. You were there in, in the beginning, um, you know, watching it. Only well, we remember it. That's a... <laughs> well, it, it's it's still, you know, it's impressive to have you on our show just uh, to give us some insight. Uh, I know uh, you were speaking earlier about uh, the whole Kennedy assassination dominating the media. And at that time, you didn't have multiple channels. You were limited to whatever channels that were available. So, um I, I would imagine that Doctor Who then provided a, a source of an escapism from all that. You can get away from, you know, all everything that was you're being inundated with, with some, um, you know, going off and, and fighting the Daleks instead of, um, you know, the, the, the coverage of, of the assassination and everything. Though yeah, I, I, I think that might be a few weeks sure, on. I think, yeah. yeah, I think it was Merlin that uh, brought up that possible link before because um, um, it certainly was a, 
well, well tragic, tragic events that uh, we've talked about it before. But um, what was the amazing? The Doctor Who just didn't get lost in all that. I mean, um, I know nowadays that uh, it seems to take an awful lot to impress young people. I mean, uh, you, you, it almost has to be something uh, like Heroes or um, The Sopranos. It has to be really a, a, a groundbreaking program before uh, younger viewers seem to get stirred at all. Though conversely, they'll then go on YouTube and spend four hours watching inane antics uh, that somebody, you know, was uh, mm-hmm. uh, striking a box of matches and throwing them into the water. And, uh, you know, a million people will go and watch that. And, and yet the, the, some uh, broadcasters won't think that because uh, an old doctor who is in black and white, perhaps that's what, you know, uh, we've heard, haven't we, recently that um, the BBC is going to um, allow some of its stuff to go onto YouTube. Well, if they could just let all the classic um, black and white ones go, or even the, um, I mean, I know they're there if you search around and uh, and they're in little 10-minute snippets and this, that and the other. But perhaps if they could put them there as a showcase, that, they wouldn't lose too much revenue from them, I'm sure. And and, and maybe, um, because they're only in a small screen size, they still might sell the DVDs of them. Mm-hmm. So perhaps that's something the BBC could look into and and uh, get those, um, because they aren't in sequence and they, they may be partial ones, get them up on the thing, get people watching them. Yeah, it's all about accessibility and, and, and getting it out there. So, I mean, we, we still have, I mean, they're not even all available on DVDs yet. So we, we haven't even accomplished that, you know, let alone um, online distribution. But... Yeah, whatever it takes. We just finished that, Lewis, in time for your uh, solid-state storage device to arrive. And you have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. Your little crystals where you can record yeah. on that or something. You're right. All right, well, thank you so much, Dave. And um, I, I do appreciate your insight. Of course, we all do. Mm-hmm. Cheers. Cheers. All right, so we're, um, I think we're going to wrap up the show, and I want to thank everyone that was involved. Um, any other, any closing comments? I wonder if we might go around the, the forum here and uh, give what we think are our favorite episodes from the era so that might help people who are new to the era uh, mm-hmm. understand yeah, where they might idea. start looking. Yeah, good idea. Well, I, I'll, I mean, it's hard for me to pick any particular, I mean, there, there are a lot that are, are my favorites, but um, I'm going to say that um, probably my, and it's maybe not, it may not be the best example for William Hartnell himself, but um, I'm going to, and, and I'm going to separate this from the trial of gum being a, another story, but the first part one, first episode of the unearthly child is still my favorite because it really, I mean, it, it, it 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 broke ground. It it's really what um, spearheaded the series, and um, it's it's it introduces the Doctor, introduces that whole mystery, and that's one thing I love about the the, the William Hartnell era is that uh, so much of the um, the mythos or the lore of Doctor Who hadn't been established yet. There was no mention of Gallifrey. There was um, by name. Um, so much of that hadn't been invented. So. 
it was so the doctor was so shrouded and Susan at that time was shrouded with mystery and, and, and not knowing where they came from. And, and to me, that was a big attraction at, of that era was that um, was the mystery was the unknowns and, and the not knowing. And when I put myself in that time frame, I, you know, I expel all the stuff that's going to come in the future or knowledge of Gallifrey and whatever, just kind of put myself in that time frame of being a typical viewer at that time, watching the series and enjoying it for what it is. And, um, so yeah, I, I would say, uh, unearthly child. And as what Ken said, uh, some of the production of, um, you know, the, the, the second version of the, the reshoot of that, um, were really nice for, for its time. Um, they did a good job with that. Well, if, uh, if you watch an unearthly child in the tribe of gum or the, or the, the cave of skulls or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I'm excluding that. <laughs> I'm just separating uh, if, that. If, if you really, you know, the, the first part of it is a complete masterpiece on, on every level, on every level, even, even cinematically, uh, if you compare it to, to classic black and white movies, uh, it works and it works perfectly. And about the first 10 minutes of part two of the cave of skulls, um, after that, please shut it off and move right to the Daleks uh, and save yourself, <laughs> save yourself a great deal of, of heartache. Um, I mean, it, it is what it is, but it, for it, when you see the second half of the four-parter, you're like, how did this show ever survive? Um, the Daleks is a, is a legendary, legendary story, and you can't go wrong there. Um, but if I had to pick a single episode that really sums up Hartnell Doctor Who, it's the Dalek invasion of Earth. You've got the Daleks, you've got the original cast, the, the Doctors uh, warmed up a little bit. It was so good they made a feature film out of it. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's past the cranky Doctor era, but not too far past. There's still a little his, his old-style Doctor, but there's a little bit of the new Doctor. It, to me, it, it just works on, on, on a number of levels. Uh, Terry Nation, of course, the writer, Raymond Cusick, the director. Um, there's some great visuals. There's some experimental music. It, it just really, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great deal of fun. There's a few, few things in it that are uh, a bit over the top, but uh, just, just purely black and white Doctor Who. And if I had to make a, I also want to make a recommendation if you are uh, dabbling in William Hartnell audios, um, I would definitely recommend the, uh, the episode Marco Polo as a, as a starting point. It's early Doctor Who. It's, a, it's, it's, a sh it's an episode that probably struggled on screen because of the limitations of the budget. But in the audio format and your imagination putting together this trip uh, of Marco Polo's, it works perfectly because your mind's eye can imagine whatever, whatever it is that, that needs to be imagined. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of that was actually what I was going to pick, Ken. But uh, well, then I'll also pick the Dalek Master Plan on CD because that's a damn good one too. <laughs> but I'm I'm going to choose um, in terms of an episode. Um, for me, what sticks in my mind, other than the Dalek Invasion of Earth, is uh, the Space Museum. Mm, um, yeah, that's I, a good one. I, I know that's kind of a bit. Um, I don't know whether you could call it you know, easy to say how good of an episode it is, but particularly even the first episode of that story really just sticks in my brain. Um, 
and for me, I think that would be one that I would definitely recommend that, that people would, would go out and watch other than, you know, The Unearthly Child, which would have been my first choice, and then The Dalek Invasion of Earth. This, you know, I think the Space Museum would be a great place for someone to start if they were just watching. You can catch an, a very young Boba Fett in there. Yeah, Pollock is a guest star. In Space Museum. Josh, how about you, mate? Uh, well, I would actually go for the Romans uh, mm-hmm. as being, um, you know, the starting point of the Dennis Spooner era. Um, not a script editor, but that's his first major contribution of a, of a story. Um, just because it's funny and because it's an example of a story, a story type that we don't really have that much anymore, that is the pure historical, the historical that has no science fictional elements to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really fun. And, and the, the budding relationship with uh, Vicky, because it's Vicky's first major adventure, um, very interesting to watch. And, of course, there's the implied sex scene between uh, Ian and Barbara, um, just good fun to watch. Um, uh, I would go for and I'm talking about before the program started. The Time Meddler, another Dennis Spooner uh, creation, um, the first pseudo historical. So it's taking the the normal historical and putting a science fictional spin on it. Uh, you know, the first mention of the Doctor's race, um, the first adventure of Stephen. Um, and you, you see Vicky being the elder companion, which is very interesting because it's not the relationship that maintained throughout the, the their era. Um, so she's bossing him around. It's very funny. It's very um, it's very tense as well with the the doctor being an action hero, which that doctor you don't normally think of as an action hero, but he actually has a bit of a fight scene. Very good, very moody as well. And on audio. Um, I would recommend The Massacre um, because uh, you get William Hartnell in a dual role. Yeah. Um, it's his, uh, what is it, Enemy of the World. Um, and you also get Stephen in just a really strong performance. And, oh, my God, one of the best scenes ever, The the very – ending scene where it appears that Stephen has left him and he's got no other companion, so he's going to go off alone. One of the best speeches that William Hartnell ever gave. Yeah. Um, and it's a heavy story, too. Oh, it's a heavy, heavy story, um, but it's really interesting. And then I'd also recommend The Savages. Uh, the Savages is a story that not even people like Dave, who are around, probably saw, because it's got one of the lowest ratings of the Hartnell era. Um, but Man, that story is fantastic. Um, that's one that I really wish was available um, to watch because apparently the costumes of the ladies in it are very revealing. Um, but um, Dave is chiming but, in the chat sessions in, in all caps, screaming, I, I saw, saw them all. All. <laughs> The Savages is important, and we didn't really talk about this that much in this um, podcast. You know, there was a great controversy surrounding William Hartnell and his exit from the series. And the reason that has always been given is that he was sick and he was ailing, and so he just kind of had to leave for health reasons. But The Savages is like his third from the last story. 
And when you listen to it, there's no fluffs in it. There's no uh, hesitation. The guy is giving a full-on performance throughout all four episodes. And um, aside from the story being really interesting because it's it's a true science fictional story, the performance of William Hartnell in it is truly exceptional. So that would be, those would be my four. There are just to just to add uh, to what you said. There there are some um, there are some controversies, and they, and they've been minimized over the years as, as time has has passed. Some controversies concerning Hartnell's exit that it may not have been uh, everything that you know we believe it to be, which was oh he was getting a little bit older and and um, and he he decided to bow out. You know towards. He, he had written some letters after he left the series saying that he was kind of pushed out and they wanted to recast a bit younger. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, that third season was a very bumpy time. The show barely survived in, in some cases. Um, so so there, is some, there is a question mark there. And, and what you said is, is very true. Here's a man who is hitting every mark, almost as if to say, you know, uh, it's not me. And, uh, yeah, I'm on my game, and yeah. uh, a man that talented just doesn't, you know, it do, it doesn't just stop one day. Um, and so he really is... wasn't that old when he took on the part. He was playing a he was playing much older than the, the he really was. William Hartnell, he, I believe he was yeah. only 55 when he took the role on. So um, he wasn't right. that old, you know. I mean, I mean, I don't know what exactly uh, everything. Health wise, you know, that doesn't, you know, right. you, could, you could have failing health at any age. But, yeah, you know. for, for those who are curious about it and for those hardcore fans, if, if you, you know, wanted to research it a little further or do a little more reading, there, there is more to the story, I'm sure. Uh, but in, in, in so far as just the, the common understanding of, of William Hartnell's exit is that, you know, as he was getting a little bit older and, and he decided to bow out of the show. Now, you know, maybe. Maybe he was, uh, you know, sort of pushed out um, in order to recast. That's, that's a possibility. It was a big gamble at the time to recast the lead in a show like that. Uh, but it is a gamble that obviously succeeded and set the template for some 40-plus years of Doctor Who. Uh, if it wasn't for that, everything we're doing right now would not exist. We wouldn't be having podcasts. People wouldn't be writing books. They, they wouldn't. There wouldn't be any discussion. That the show would have been a, a novelty, a three or four year novelty, and that would have been the end of it. Well, it, what's interesting is that um, I don't know if it was um, a couple live shows ago. We had this uh, when we were doing the the series uh, series three or the two thousand and seven series, if you will, uh, wrap up discussion. And I, I believe it was Joe um, Omega that was on board with us, and he had made a mention that. Uh, so far, you know, at the the climax of every series in current Doctor Who has been a returning foe from the past. You know, be it Daleks or Cybermen or or the Master. And out of those three, two of them originated in the in the William Hartnell era. You know, and that says a lot. That that <laughs> that, yeah. that it it still carries over today. I mean, of course, the Cybermen have you know evolved many times since then. Um, thankfully, they're not they don't look like you know mummies with big lights on. Um, um, headlights on their heads, <laughs> but um, 
you know, it, it, but it's, it's, it's testimony to that original run that, that William Hartner had in that series and the, the, the producers and writers and, uh, of, of that era. It still has lasting power today. And, and indeed, the format of new Doctor Who, of Russell T. Davis' Doctor Who, is very much modeled after Randy Lambert in that you have um, different genres mixed up together by degree. And, you know, we've seen a return now to episode titles as it had been originally. Um, nope. There's no question but that Russell T. Davies mm-hmm. is a big fan earlier part. Uh, I think that maybe he'd be a, a, a baker or a between model guy, but he's not really. And actually, you know, you, br- you bring up a good point, and, and here we are trying to wrap up a, a Hartnell discussion, and we've missed probably one of the most significant parts of Doctor Who and that is it began as a serial where there were these, you know, each week you would tune in and there would be this cliffhanger. That's mm-hmm. probably one of the most unique things about Doctor Who. Uh, Star Trek, Stargate, all these shows since then, uh, X-Files, many times neatly wrap up after 45 minutes of programming. And, you know, it's like time to, to, to knot it all together. And only now do we even take a chance on having... I mean, back in the 60s, and Star Trek fans will attest to this, is that network television did not allow two-part episodes. They wanted no part of of rolling the dice that you would come back next week. And here's Doctor Who making four-part stories, 12-part stories, seven-part stories. You tune in. You've been missing a month, and you tune in, and you're on part five of a story. That's death in the television business. That's just... You're sunk. Here's Doctor Who doing it. And it lasted all the way until 1989. It just was mm-hmm. accepted that's the way Doctor Who um, worked. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I accept the new format, but one of the things that we've discussed about the last three years, the, the new, the Russell T. Davies era, is one of the things we miss is that, that serialization. Although he does a pretty decent job of there are enough two-parters, and now even this three-parter, that we do get a sense of the cliffhangers. And um, there are sort of little mini cliffhangers inside the stories that that nod to the uh, to the the old era of Doctor, the classic era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I should also because many people in our chat have mentioned the meddling monk, and um, you know it could be argued that he was the forerunner for the master, and 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 again the master is still around today. All right. Well, it was an interesting show. Uh, and again, thank thank you everyone that's been involved. And on the uh, next exciting episode of Doctor Who Podshock Live, is uh, Patrick Troughton. In two weeks, Patrick we'll Trouton. be be doing this all over again on a, a Sunday at one p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So I encourage everyone to join us. We're going to be talking about Patrick Troughton, his error, which, um, as Ken rightly points out many times, if it wasn't for um, his success as the second Doctor, again, we probably wouldn't all be here talking again. They're talking about Doctor Who because if that had failed, if the regeneration and people didn't accept Patrick Troughton as the Doctor and, and the series, you know, tanked, that would have been the end. <laughs> it would have been four, maybe four, you know, four years of, of, a, of a quaint little show called Doctor Who, and that would have been the end of it. So, um, you know, and I, and I believe that the Patrick Troughton recasting, you know, the, the, the Hartnell and the Troughton, uh, preceded uh, James Bond changing actors. So, again, yeah. it was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. You know, James Bond went on 
to recast its lead, uh, perhaps uh, based on the success that Doc Doctor Who was able to to recast and, and conceive. Yeah, no, a lot of people don't realize that that James Bond is really a time lord. That's why his <laughs> appearance keeps on changing. Right. <laughs> All righty. Well, thanks again, everyone. And, um, yeah, cheers. Yeah, come back next time. And until then... <laughs> Au revoir. Au You've been listening to Doctor Who Podshock live by the fan, fan one, GallifreyandEmbassy.org, and presented by Outpost Gallifrey at Gallifrey1.com. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. internet talk show check it out at talkshoe.com